pretty much all I've got on my mind right now, Nathan Wallace, but I'm going to focus for you. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Really good, thanks. I hope you're about to have a lovely festive season and maybe a bit of a break as well. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait. Got my granddaughters living with me this year, so I've got a seven-year-old and a two-year-old. That brings all the magic back to Christmas. You love it. You absolutely love it. Mm, Yep. All right, send your questions in for uh, Nathan or your observations about birth order. If you're the eldest child, the stereotype would have us believe you're responsible, conscientious and a bit bossy. Second born, more chilled out and creative and the youngest, spoiled. But does birth order really influence personality? The evidence is not really there, says neuroscience educator Nathan Wallace, and personality is more to do with the circumstances into which we are born. Uh, Nathan, welcome back as always. What are we drilling into with this, please? Um, I think absolutely your birth order does affect your personality, but so do you know a thousand million other things. So I think that's why we get confused. We're looking for it to be that. It's not the main defining thing. You know, um, you can sort of see why the eldest child will have a bit more responsibility placed on them because they're the eldest. Um, but it doesn't dictate that every eldest child in the world is going to have a sense of responsibility. You get some naughty eldest children sometimes too. There's always deviations from the norm. What then is there uh, sort of common wisdom about with respect to the difference that birth order can make? What then is the the common wisdom, Nathan, with the respect to which the the, the difference the birth order can make? We appear to have lost Nathan. No, I'm back again. Oh, yeah, yeah. Are you, are you just pondering? Sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, pondering. Now, what was your question? Sorry, Captain. Uh, what is the difference that birth... What is the common wisdom, then, on the difference oh, yeah. that birth order can make? Oh, well, I think it's pretty much what you said at the start. Um, you know, about the... They, well, they assume for a start you only have three children, so... There's going to be lots more middle children, but lots more middle children go into the helping professions. Because when you're a middle child, you could argue that a middle child has better communication skills because they have to learn how to be an authority, but also have someone who's got authority over them. Whereas the eldest child only knows how to be bossy, the youngest child only knows how to be bossed, uh, the middle child knows both. So there's a conventional wisdom that middle children go more into helping professions like teaching and nursing and that sort of stuff. And we do see that you know, a little bit validated by the statistics. Um, but like I said, eldest children often earn more. Um, there's a whole complicated, a myriad of reasons why that is. Does it affect sometimes, uh, how can I put this, can it affect relationships? Because those early, we know those early years and those early relationships sort of set our um, pattern for behaviour. Yep. And I'm yep, curious yep. if uh, the middle kid is often resentful because they kind of, they're not getting intention either way. Uh, or, yeah. you know, the, another theory that comes in is that parents kind of f- fatigue and or get busier the further through their family uh, they get. Yep. Can mm-hmm. it affect how, literally how a person might conduct relationships? Um, it absolutely can. But like, like I said before, it can along with a thousand other things. So it doesn't have to define it, but it absolutely can affect it. Um, you know, the middle child gets a raw deal because often they're only special for that two years. You know, the firstborn is the firstborn. It was so anticipated for your whole life, and they get all the specialness of being the firstborn. The youngest gets to stay the baby and the special one for years and years and years. And the middle child can, if there's, you know, a short age gap, will accentuate that. Um, but if they're in the middle, they can feel left out, not the special one, not the 
not the eldest one, not the youngest one. But it doesn't mean they have to. I mean, I'm a middle child. I think I'm more special than everybody. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't mean they have to. So what are the other factors in play and what should parents and caregivers be mindful of if they don't want a chip on one's shoulder uh, or or, or they don't want another one, you know, kind of overburdened with a sense of responsibility? What are some of the things to be aware of? I think we can actually, this is where we can learn a bit from stereotypes, because normally from a research point of view, there isn't, there isn't heaps of evidence around um, you know, the effect of, of personal, of, um, on your personality of birth order. But if intuitively the stereotype tells us the youngest child's going to feel missed out, then that tells us, look for that in your youngest child. Um, do, a, do that mate date thing where you give them 10 minutes a week where you prioritise them and there's a one-on-one with them and you have a meeting with them and you give them 10 minutes of your life at a predictable time. Like That will compensate for that. So I think we can use those stereotypes to go, um, do the youngest feel like they get everything handed to them on a platter? So that we make sure, well, we can counteract that stereotype by, you know, helping them budget their pocket money and to save for things and get them to earn things. And you know, I think we can use those stereotypes to say, if that is a common experience of people born as the eldest or the middle or the youngest, then what can we do to compensate? What you say is that most people end up a mixture of different types. And what do you yeah. mean by that? Because hardly anyone is really that average imaginary child that doesn't exist where you've got a sibling that's two years older than you and one that's two years younger than you and you're the middle child. You know, we all have a deviation on that. There might be a three-year age gap or a four-year age gap on one side and a two-year age gap on the other. So that, all of that's going to affect that dynamic and those relationships. So, I mean, my, I've got a, my sister's got five daughters. She had three daughters and then a big gap. And like in, when, my, when Rose, the youngest of the three, was like 12, um, I think it was about 12, well, she might have been younger, but they um, had two more babies. And so what I'm saying is Rose would be a, she's been an only child for the first 12 years of her life. And then, but after that, she did have younger siblings. So she was going to be a mixed type because she's going to be a mixture between the youngest and the middle. She's going to experience it being both. So most of us don't, you know, fit that typical average norm smack down in the middle. What I am interested in, some previous work that you've done, though, that shows the maturation can be impacted by family order. You mentioned if you're the first-born girl, you're probably going to be well on your road to adult maturity by 18. If you're the youngest boy, though, or the second boy... Yep, that's 32. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a huge difference. So what's that about? Um, that's about the first thousand days of your life and that you're data gathering in the first thousand days. And when you don't have to share your, um, well, there's two things. There's a gender difference in terms of have to refer back to evolution. And then there's that, the first thousand days, if you don't have to share your parent in the first year of life, that's a huge advantage from a human development point of view. Your brain grows faster, you're reaching you on average. You, I mean, it's not the only factor. So again, there's nothing, one factor that is defining this is Every eldest child has got an adult brain by 18. It's just more than the rest of the population, and it's more likely because they, when we say language is the major driver of cognition, your firstborn child, we often speak 20,000 words a day to on average, all the other in the first year of life when they're data gathering, and all the other kids, we're speaking 15,000 words to a day. So language is the major driver of cognition. That has a big impact. So it's just one of the examples about not sharing your parent in the first year of life. And that's without the psychological stuff of not having to wait and being continually held in relationship uh, you know, 100% of the time because your parents' attention is not thwarted by a, a two-year-old that needs attention as well. So that has a big psychological impact. Um, yeah, so there's a big thing with the, being the firstborn child. Is it also that parents um, hopefully um, get better at what they're doing <laughs> over time? Yes, yes. Um, yes. And, and can that be part of the mix as well? 
Absolutely. But I mean, that's a, that's a dynamic. You might, you do get better at parenting, obviously, the more kids you've got, but you might have your mini me as child number three. And your mini me is far more challenging and brings out much more of your mother in you than the other kids did. And actually, you might find that more challenging, even though it's child number three. You know, so there's so many different factors and, and dynamic there. So when you look at the actual research, Nathan, it's pretty loose on the idea that there is a, a particular influence of birth order. There may be yep. allied things, but not the birth order itself. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that um, Einstein's what spooky action at a distance thing. I think because we invest so much in it, it becomes more true, if that makes sense. Like, you know, all personality type tests, when you go for a job and you do these personality type tests and, um, you know, cycle, they, they all come from Myers and Briggs. And which all comes from Carl Jung's work. So it's been used so much around the world, but it has no real scientific evidence base that it's accurate. And yet still, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people still use it today. So I think it lies in that, you know, in-between space where there isn't a lot of academic evidence to it, but there does seem to be some evidence to it. And because we, you know, when you read your star signs and you, I read the cancer one and relate more to the cancer one because I'm a cancerian, I mean, the stars aren't even in the place where I wouldn't be a Cancerian, you know, it's, it's not even accurate. Um, but My favourite was world... the newspaper I worked on where we used to get them a month late. Right. <laughs> published them anyway. Uh, slept so much yeah. weight you should have put on that, put on the star yeah, signs yeah. there. Um, but you're right, the power of suggestion. And also we're designed as human beings, aren't we, to hone in, what's it called... Um, Confirmation, bias, confirmation. Confirmation bias, yeah, yes. yeah. So yeah. We, we, we're programmed to hone in on the yep. whatever our characteristics fit the theory, and then we go, oh, yes, that's right. Let's yep. look at some of the feedback. This person says, as a youngest child, I never learned how to compete as no one came after me. In life, I give up easily, and yes, was spoilt, but only by my mother. Now, that's an easy, that's an interesting theory. Yeah. Do we learn to compete from our siblings, necessarily? Yeah, because I always think I'm not very competitive because I went to a country school and there was only 38 kids in the whole school, so you couldn't have teams. And when you were playing, you had to be aware that that person was two years younger than you, so you can't really go hard on that person. You had to go softer. And, oh, that person's father had died, so we wanted to set him up to be man of the match and stuff. So I did not develop much competition. But I suppose it's all different aspects of your life that you can get that from. Oh, 50% of your outcomes are predictable at birth just based on your genes. So everything is always interplaying against that. We never know whether, like in that example, um, she might have been born with a genetic predisposition not to be very competitive and that being the youngest in the family just confirmed that. You know? I am the third of fourth children, four children growing up on a farm, speaking of rural. The yeah. best thing was my brother and I being middle children could just get on with life and being really adventurous without anyone really noticing. Advantages in every position. So that's where you get an accumulation of factors coming into play, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I love that. I love that they're taking the, um, we were neglected as middle children to going, yes, we neglected as little children. We can get up to what we want to. <laughs> well, they're not the only ones. This one yeah. says, I wasn't spoiled as the youngest. I was ignored. Parental fatigue had kicked in. Bad yep. for positive reinforcement, but great for going under the radar. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear that all the time. The um, um, youngest people saying they feel like their parents were over-parenting, especially by the time they got to adolescence. The other kids are grown up, and they just wanted me to be hurried up and grown up and left home. That's a common experience, and that's quite opposite to feeling spoiled. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation. It's probably one that has got a little bit of validity to it, yeah. is that you can over-focus, uh, arguably, 
uh, and very intensively focus in a way that can have negatives as well as positives, and, and you can underfocus. Um, uh, the underfocus issue, where I, I'm looking at that case bad for positive reinforcement because children okay. do need a little bit of adoration in those early days, don't they? Um, yep. In those early years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Especially love and connection and safety and, you know, positive All of that. Yeah. All of that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have three daughters. Oldest independent like a cat. Middle lives life by her terms like a cat. Youngest feeds the cat. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, yes, love it. One more comment. As the middle girl, I've always maintained that I am the most well-balanced. Older sister says I need to be quiet and know my place. Younger sister asks, who cares? It's all coming out now, isn't it? Yeah, Um, yeah, absolutely. I have one question for you. This person says, I have an older seven-year-old girl who's definitely in the bossy bracket but doesn't seem to have the conscious bug. I wonder... Oh, I see. Um, If she hurts her siblings by accident, for example, she'll say things like, I want to be sorry and doesn't seem to go to them if they're needing help. Is this something I should be worrying about, or is that just Mm. her personality? Both. (laughs) Um, You know, when you've got that... um, You know, we don't want to over-label a child, but, you know, she's describing someone down that um, end that has very little empathy. And so it is good that she's observed that and is aware of that. Um, So she, as a parent, can encourage empathy. But at the same time... You know, like I said, 50% of your personality set. Your temperament doesn't change. It's born that way. It doesn't change your whole life. You don't want her to feel like she's wrong for not having empathy, but at the same time, you want to do everything you can to encourage the empathy to develop in her. But also take the action. It's interesting. Yeah. She says, I want to be sorry, doesn't seem to go and help them. You can yeah. help with what to do in a situation, can't you? That's right, yeah, yeah. But you might have to, as the parents, scaffold that for them by oh. going, um, well, I think well, this is what you could do. Maybe you could just go and get her a drink of water and um, I'll get a, a tea towel to put on her wrist. I'm just making this up as I go, right? But, you know, you involve yourself in doing empathetic things and get them to help you by going to get a drink of water. And you, you're basically doing 99% of it yourself, but you're modelling and teaching empathy. And then hopefully as they get older, they start to do 2% and then 5% and then 10% and hopefully get up to 100%. I think the timing for this conversation was perfect, Nathan, because we're about to bring a whole bunch of older, middle and younger children together, (laughs) along with a whole bunch of other people. Put them in a room at once. Yeah. And watch those old behaviour patterns kick in. Yeah, that's right. We all resort to... And if they're ever going to kick in, it is when you're around your siblings as well. I mean, that's one of the things that comes through, is you might be the classic stereotypical youngest or middle helpless child. I do that if I'm around my older siblings and stuff. I kick back, do nothing. I'm a middle child. I'm the mischief maker. But that doesn't mean I'm that in my whole life. I'm that in my family, my meeting my children and stuff. I'm obviously the organiser and the carer and the nurturer and the one that gets stuff done. Isn't it funny the way those old patterns just seem to assert themselves? Uh, they do, right? They do, yeah. absolutely. It goes to show just how closely we're all bonded and how much we all love each other. That's do right. Even as we irritate the hell out of each other. <laughs> Have true, a wonderful true. Christmas uh, and yeah, enjoy too, your, um, your mokapuna. That'll be wonderful, Nathan. Well, Joe. Okay. Merry Christmas, mate. Thanks, okay. you too. Nathan Wallace.